Let us pray. Dear Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you for this evening. We thank you for this chance to be able to come out of the rain and to come into a place that is warm and dry. Lord, we pray that you would turn our hearts from all the things that we've been preoccupied with during the day and that you would turn them toward you. Lord, we pray that the truth that comes from your scripture uh, would come through in Lewis's words in this chapter and in the passages of scripture that we study and that you would use this time to help draw us further into the things of your kingdom. For we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, uh, I am delighted to be back. Several of y'all have asked me about how the eye surgery went, and I'm delighted to report that it went really, really, really well. I can see better now than I've been able to see since September, so I am very, very thankful to God and grateful for all of your prayers. So uh, it is good because now I can actually see what's on the computer and the screen instead of having to guess what's there. So that is an improvement. But now it is going to be time for you to guess because we have our little musical selection. My song is love. Love to the loveless shore. So does anybody know what that is? Or it who it is? Not you too, that is always a good guess for me, but that's not it. You don't have Did somebody say Coldplay? It is Coldplay. Does anybody know which song it is? Your heavy heart. It's a song called A Message. And there is a reason that we're listening to it that will become clear at the end of class. My song is love. All right. So uh, let's say our verse together as we get started. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you, keep your head in all situations. Endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, discharge all the duties of your ministry. So it is a great joy to welcome y'all back this week, uh, either in person or those of you that are joining us on the live stream. Uh, we continue to get more and more people in places that I can't figure out how they ever heard about this class, but it is great to have them along with us. And if you are new, a couple of things. There are three ways to approach this class. You can be on the beach, which means that you're on the osmosis method. Um, you don't read anything. You don't study anything. Something might occasionally stick, uh, and that is all that you're going to do. And that's great. If that's all you want to do, I'm happy to have you. Or you can snorkel, which means you go deep on the parts that you find interesting and ignore the rest. Or you can scuba dive and go deep on everything. And, uh, and if you particularly are a snorkeler or scuba diver, you really want to make sure that you are on the class email list. So particularly if you are new, uh, if you're in person, please sign the list over there. Uh, if you're not getting the class emails, if you are online or on the podcast, uh, please Google St. Philip's Church Charleston and send me an email and I'll get you added uh, to that class email list. And that will get you uh, summaries of the class from the week before, um, handouts, music links, and other thought-provoking things. I do want to just say one word about the email that I sent last time uh, when we were not having class because of the surgery. Uh, I don't know how many of you actually scrolled down and read that, but there is a wonderful gift to you in that email, which is a link 
to a BBC radio theater production of Dorothy Sayers' The Man Born to be King. And The Man Born to be King is a really terrific play that Dorothy Sayers wrote that dramatizes Jesus' life. And it particularly focuses on uh, the last week of Jesus' life. And C.S. Lewis was so impressed with this play that he read it every year during Holy Week as his devotional. So uh, I would commend that to you. Uh, it's a great resource. Um, also, I want to just remind you, if you're reading along, try not to read ahead. I know it's really hard, but try to read slowly uh, because there's so much to chew on in this book. We're not even going to finish chapter 11 tonight. We're going to get within sight of finishing it. Uh, but just stick in chapter 11 for a little while more. So, um, some review of the first part of chapter 11 uh, from two weeks ago. Um, the first theme that we talked about was this theme of entitlement. And you will remember this was the woman, Pam, who was determined that she was going to see her son who was in heaven. And she couldn't understand why he was in heaven and she was in hell and she was not very happy about it and she was going to give God a piece of her mind and uh, tell him exactly what she thought about that. Uh, but one of the things that we said is that scripture is quite full of reminders to us that approaching God with any kind of sense of entitlement is exactly backwards. Uh, this whole idea of God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And then we also talked about disordered love. And this is this whole idea that Lewis is playing with throughout this chapter uh, that goes right back to St. Augustine. And those of you that were in the Abolition of Man in that hideous strength class, we did a deep dive into this. And basically Augustine's principle is that when our loves are in the right order, which would be love of God first and foremost and deepest before love of anything else, love of neighbor than love of self, that when we are participating in love in that ordered way that God has hardwired into us, then we experience joy. But when those loves get out of order and we put something else in the place of God, all sorts of chaos and pain and wreckage result in our lives. And uh, we talked about Augustine writing about this in the fourth century in the City of God, which is a really wonderful book. It is really, really long. Uh, if you decide that you want to read City of God, please talk to me and I can tell you about a really good abridged version even the abridged version is like 650 pages long. Um, but it's, it's a book where you can sort of jump into parts of it and read. And so, and it's very much worth doing that. There also is a little book on the book table that is daily readings with St. Augustine. If, you, if City of God scares you to death, um, this is a very manageable little book that has snippets in it. But I, any, any Augustine that you read, I promise will bless you. But he talks about this idea of rightly ordered loves, and it became something that was part of the way that Christian thought grew, um, particularly during the Middle Ages. And this whole idea of the linkage of virtue and love. Um, Dante, when he was writing uh, his Divine Comedy, thought about the seven deadly sins as being uh, each an example of disordered love. So this idea is really important and really important to Lewis. Another theme in this chapter is religion as only a means to an end. And you know, when Pam is being talked to about what she needs to do to see her son, uh, she says well, she doesn't really care about religion, but if it's necessary, she will, she'll do what's necessary. Um, she'll jump through the hoop, she'll pretend to believe, uh, but she learns that uh, that is not the way to approach God. Um, then there's a whole section in this chapter about loves, a love that is sincere, a love that is self-giving, a love that is full of desire for the best for the person being loved. 
rather than selfishness, wanting what you want when you want it, control, all of those things that masquerade as love. And then uh, this whole theme of feelings as being false gods and idols. And it's remarkable to me that this is being written in the 1940s, but boy, is this ever true of our culture today, that whatever we feel must be reality. Whatever it's about, even if it flies in the face of factuality, if we feel it, that means it's authentic, and therefore we are speaking our own truth, and how dare you disagree with my feeling about anything. And what Lewis makes very clear here is that he believes what the scripture teaches, that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. And therefore, you would not want to rely on your feelings about pretty much anything. Um, he also does a great job of the danger of living in the past and idolizing memories. And he talks about that being Egyptian, that it's like taking a period of your life and embalming it and trying to live with that area that is gone and over and past and how there is absolutely no joy to be found in that approach. Then the whole idea of inventing God as we would like him to be, uh, we hear so much of this today in our culture. Uh, I don't believe in a God who would X, Y, Z. I believe in a God who does this or this that accords with my feelings about God, which sort of leaves aside whether there actually is God and how to engage with him on the terms of who he actually is, rather than this idea of inventing him the way we would like him to be. And then there's a whole section on the disorienting danger of hatred. And again, in our culture, we have got a lot of hatred flying around today, and it unhinges people and really robs us of our humanity and the idea that all people are made in the image of God. And then he also talks about this need for affection to be converted into eternal love. He talks about the fact that our worldly loves are only a shadow of the love that exists in eternity in the kingdom of heaven. And in order for them to survive into the kingdom of heaven, they have to be like that seed that Jesus talks about that needs to fall into the ground, be buried, and die so that it can grow again in a way that is fruitful. And then God is the only good and this whole idea of rightly ordered love. And this quotation sounds like it was Augusta, not Lewis. There is but one good, that is God. Everything else is good when it looks to him and bad when it turns from him. And the higher and mightier it is in the natural order, the more demoniac it will be if it rebels. So lots of good stuff in the first part of this chapter. Lots of big ideas to make your head swim a little bit. But we haven't even gotten to the good part yet. And the good part is tonight's lesson. Tonight's lesson. So part two, uh, we're going to have three parts in this chapter. But part two focuses on this episode in the middle of the chapter where, remember, Lewis is still walking with George MacDonald, and they are encountering these different ghosts. And so they walk up, and they encounter this ghost who is a young man, and on his shoulder is sitting this bright red lizard whose throat is swelling and throbbing. And the lizard is whispering in the guy's ear. And the guy is originally walking into this far green country toward the mountains where the bright spirits are. But as this lizard that's sitting on his shoulder speaks to him, his facial expression changes and eventually changes into sort of a leer. And then he turns around and starts walking away from the mountains. And at that point, he encounters one of the bright spirits. And the bright spirit talks to him about what he's thinking. And the guy says, I can't go further in 
because this lizard is sitting on my shoulder and he's disgusting and the types of things that he says have no place in this heavenly country and I can't get rid of him and so rather than pollute the heavenly country, I'm just gonna turn around and go back. And then sort of to the surprise of this young man, the bright spirit says, do you want me to get rid of the lizard? And the young man becomes interested about what that might look like. And then immediately the bright spirit says, may I kill it? And the young man is like, whoa! I wasn't asking for anyone to kill anything. I'm just like gradual. We're going to like gradually, and maybe I can train him, and maybe he'll behave. Maybe it's all going to be fine. And then the spirit totally ignores what he said and says, may I kill it? And he keeps talking about that it must be killed. And so you see in this a whole um, theology of dealing with sin. And this particular lizard... Uh, we're going to learn later on, represents one of the seven deadly sins, which is lust. And that this lizard is continually whispering lustful thoughts into this guy's ear. But the way that Lewis writes this is absolutely brilliant. And I would really encourage you, if you are a sinner, any sinners out there? If you are a sinner... This is really important material because Lewis understands how sin gets all woven up and all up in our face and the fact that we can't persist in that sort of compromised position. So that's basically what happens. Um, and we're going to look at some key, key passages. So the first one um, that Lewis models for us in the way he sets up the chapter is that sin literally attaches itself to us. I saw coming toward us a ghost who carried something on his shoulder. Like all the ghosts, he was unsubstantial, but they differed from one another as smokes differ. Some had been whitish. This one was dark and oily. What sat on his shoulder was a little red lizard, and it was twitching its tail like a whip and whispering things in his ear. As we caught sight of him, he turned his head to the reptile with a snarl of impatience. Shut up, I tell you, he said. It wagged its tail and continued to whisper to him. He ceased snarling and presently began to smile. Then he turned and started to limp westward away from the mountains. And then this theme of sin cannot be managed. And I just want to say, this is the disease of our age. We all think that we can manage sin, that we, particularly if we're Christians, and we've been Christians for a while, oh, I can manage that, I can deal with that. Well, Lewis would disagree, as would scripture. I told this little chap, the man here indicated the lizard, that he'd have to be quiet if he came up here, but he won't stop. I shall just have to go home. Would you like me to make him quiet, said the flaming spirit, an angel. I mean, keep away, said the ghost. Don't you want him killed? You didn't say anything about killing him at first. I hardly meant to bother you with anything so drastic as that. It's the only way, said the angel. Anytime you hear someone say it's the only way, particularly today, it makes the skin on the back of your neck turn red and all the hair skin, because we don't like being told there's only one way to do something. We want to be able to have it all. We believe syncretism is the way forward. And it creeps into the Christian life for many of us as well. And going along with that, sin cannot be defeated by a gradual process. The bright spirit said, shall I kill it? I mean, for the moment, I was only thinking about silencing it because up here, well, it's so damned embarrassing. There is no time. May I kill it? Look, look, it's gone to sleep of its own accord. I'm sure it'll be all right now. Thanks ever so much. May I kill it? Honestly, I don't think there's the slightest necessity for that. I'm sure I shall be able to keep it in order now. I think the gradual process would be far better than killing it. The gradual process is of no use at all, 
Well, that's pretty clear. The other thing, excuses for sin. Has anyone ever made an excuse for sin? Ever rationalized anything? Excuses for sin can't bear their own weight. So the man says, I'll think over what you've said very carefully. I honestly will. In fact, I'd let you kill it now. But as a matter of fact, I'm not feeling frightfully well today. It would be silly to do it now. I'd need to be in good health for the operation. Some other day, perhaps. There is no other day. All days are present now. Always looking for some reason that this is not the time to deal with it. Just put it off a little bit farther into the future. We've got all the time in the world. Why bother to have to do something that's difficult? And then, we don't like this part either. Eliminating sin will hurt. Imagine that. Hurt. Pain. You're burning me. How can I tell you to kill it? You'd kill me if you did. I never said it wouldn't hurt you. I said it wouldn't kill you. Why are you torturing me? You are jeering at me. How can I let you tear me to pieces? If you wanted to help me, why didn't you kill the damn thing without asking me? Before I knew, it would be all over by now if you had. Now notice what's happening. Not only are we learning that sin and eliminating it hurts, but this guy, he's just like we are. Somehow, now all of this is the bright spirit's fault. The bright spirit should have been able to realize that he wanted the lizard killed without his saying so, and he should have just gone on and done it. And so now the whole problem is that the bright spirit didn't do that, and that's why we're in the mess that we're in. Have you ever blamed God for your problems? Don't raise your hand. All right. God will not intervene against our will, and sin will try to seduce us. And this is a really important passage. I cannot kill it against your will. It is impossible. Have I your permission? The angel's hands were almost closed on the lizard. Then the lizard began chattering. Be careful. He can do what he says. He can kill me. One fatal word from you and he will. Then you'll be without me forever and ever. It's not natural. How could you live? You'd be only a sort of ghost, not a real man as you are now. He doesn't understand. He's only a cold, bloodless, abstract thing. It may be natural for him but it isn't for us. Yes, yes, I know there are no real pleasures now, only dreams, but aren't they better than nothing? And I'll be so good. I admit, I've sometimes gone too far in the past, but I promise I won't do it again. I'll give you nothing but really nice dreams, all sweet and fresh and almost innocent. You might say, quite innocent. Sin will try to seduce you. It will sound so reasonable and practical and even wise, and it's just so easy to go along with what it says. But the fact of the matter is that we need to invite God into the situation and give him permission to take charge and deal with these things because God wants to free us from slavery to sin that steals our joy. Eventually, after they're going back and forth, finally the man says, it would be better to be dead than to live with this creature. Then I may? Damn and bless you, go on, can't you? Get it over, do what you like, bellowed the ghost, but ended whippering, God help me, God help me. Next moment, the ghost gave a scream of agony, such as I never heard on earth. The burning one closed his crimson grip on the flung it, broken-backed on the turf. Ow! That's done for me, gasped the ghost, reeling backwards. And then, when loves are rightly ordered, when the sin has been killed, 
and you've been set free, there's healing and joy. I saw between me and the nearest bush, unmistakably solid, but growing every moment solider, where the ghost had been, the upper arm and the shoulder of a man. Then brighter still and stronger, the legs and hands. The neck and golden head materialized while I watched. And if my attention had not wavered, I should have seen the actual completing of a man, an immense man, naked, not much smaller than the angel. At the same moment, something seemed to be happening to the lizard. At first, I thought the operation had failed. So far from dying, the creature was still struggling and even growing bigger as it struggled. And as it grew, it changed. Its hinder parts grew rounder. The tail, still flickering, became a tail of hair that flickered between huge and glossy buttocks. Suddenly, I started back rubbing my eyes. What stood before me was the greatest stallion I have ever seen, silvery white, but with mane and tail of gold. It was smooth and shining, rippled with swells of flesh and muscle, whinnying and stamping with its hoofs. At each stamp, the land shook and the trees dundled. The new-made man turned and clapped the new horse's neck. It nosed his bright body. Horse and master breathed each into the other's nostrils. The man turned from it, flung himself at the feet of the burning one, and embraced them. And what you see here is that when the sin is put to death, the loves are rightly ordered, then all of these God-given urges are put into their rightful place and they become something beautiful that makes this man more than he ever was before. So, looking at some of these themes in the context of Scripture, sin attaches itself to us. I saw coming toward us a ghost who carried something on his shoulder. What sat on his shoulder was a little red lizard, and it was twitching its tail. Isn't that the way sin is? It clings to you. It follows you everywhere. Even when you don't want it to be there, it's always there. And Hebrews says this so beautifully in chapter 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And I love this verse because I want you to imagine people on a track getting ready to run a race. And if you've ever been to a track meet, you will know that you want to be wearing your lightweight shoes, you want to be wearing a lightweight jersey, you don't want anything that is going to slow you down. And imagine showing up for a speed, showing up for that, with a giant backpack full of barbells. That would be stupid, because there's no way you can run a race, let alone win a race, when you've got all these weights on you. And that's exactly the metaphor that we see here in Hebrews, that if we're getting ready to run this race that the Lord has laid out for us, we have to cast off these weights, we have to cast off sin, which clings so closely. Elsewhere in scripture, sin is often described as a net that catches us. And if you've ever gotten caught in a net, you may know that it is very difficult to try to get out. I am really bad at trying to shrimp with a cast net. And I have had occasions of catching myself in the net rather than any sort of seafood. And um, that is not a pleasant experience. But it's just a reminder that sin attaches itself to us and can't be managed, but must be put to death. And you hear in this dialogue the guy talking to the lizard and saying, oh, it's going to be quiet now. He's going to be good. Really? And how many years do you think this guy has been with this lizard? He knows that this is not true. This is like, and I don't want to step on any toes, but this is like 
the parent who has a really out-of-control three-year-old who says, oh, they're just hyper right now. They're going to be fine. And an hour and a half later, the three-year-old is still running around, throwing paint on the wall, screaming, all of those kinds of things. Uh, unless measures are taken, these sorts of things don't calm down by themselves. And part of what is interesting about sin and temptation is the scriptures tell us that we are to flee temptation. And when it uses that word flee, that's the same kind of word that if you were in a burning building and you're told to flee that building, that's what it means. And if you're in a building that is burning down, you are not going to be looking around to make sure that you bring all your bills with you and that you bring uh, all of the souvenir t-shirts that you got when you were a teenager. You know, you're not going to be doing that, or at least I hope not. Um, you're going to be running as fast as you possibly can to get out of there. But the problem with us is that we think we can manage temptation. We think we can manage sin. And this reminds me of an embarrassing story about myself. Several years ago, I was preaching on that flea temptation passage and the next part, which is pursue love, truth, and righteousness along with those of a pure heart. And so it was senior high camp session, so I was doing it as a skit. So I had one person who was temptation, so they were holding a sign that said temptation. I had another person who was righteousness, another person who was joy, and then I had another one who was those with a pure heart. And so I said, the problem is that we don't do what this verse says about fleeing. So I had the temptation person come out and the righteousness, love, and peace, those with a pure heart. And I went up and just started hanging out with the temptation person. And I said, that's what we do. We hang out with temptation, and we think, I can handle it. I'm going to manage it. But eventually what happens is it will eat us for lunch. And then I tried to show what you're supposed to do instead. And I said, instead, you're supposed to flee temptation. Watch what I'm going to do this time. So as soon as the guy came out with the sign that said temptation, I pushed off, and I tried to run as fast as I could to the other side of the chapel but I forgot that I was standing on a throw rug. And I went airborne. I didn't know I could get this much air. I was like four or five feet in the air and totally horizontal. And I started thinking, this is not going to end well because I'm going to drop. And I did. All of me dropped, bam, right onto the floor of the Chapel of the Palms, um, which maybe the reason they had to rebuild it. Uh, and of course, there was this, but it was interesting because on the last day of camp, I had several campers tell me they would never forget about fleeing temptation. So maybe it all worked out in the end. But this idea that sin can be managed is so much part of our culture right now. And you will actually hear, along with that verse that we started our class off with, Christian teachers that basically tell you sin is no big deal, that it's fine to sin, that sin is a sort of an outmoded construct. But listen to what Scripture says. Put to death, gosh, that sounds just like the chapter, doesn't it? Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out, and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. Scripture is very clear that sin is deadly serious and that we have to invite God to come into our lives and to put these things to death. Sin cannot be defeated by a gradual process. And just listen to this dialogue. For the moment, I was only thinking about silencing it because up here, well, it's so damn embarrassing. There is no time. May I kill it? Look, it's gone to sleep of its own accord. I'm sure it will be all right now. Thanks ever so much. May I kill it? Honestly, 
I don't think there's the slightest necessity for that. I'm sure I shall be able to keep it in order now. I think the gradual process would be far better than killing it. The gradual process is of no use at all. And when you're looking at this, I want you to think about the nature of addiction. If you know someone in your life who is an alcoholic or who struggles with drugs, um, you have seen and you've had probably so many of these conversations where I can handle it, I can handle it, that was just that night, I can handle it, it really all is going to be fine. But the fact of the matter is, and the reason that Alcoholics Anonymous works, is that you have to hit bottom and you have to say, I am an alcoholic and realize you cannot drink. You can't have just a little bit or drink in moderation and have it be okay. And Paul describes this so beautifully in Romans. I want to do what is good, but I don't. I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. But if I do what I don't want to do, I'm not really the one doing wrong. It is sin living in me that does it. And then further on in Romans, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. And part of the deal here that Lewis gets at implicitly in this chapter, and we're going to see more later on, is that it's not just putting the sin to death. That's part of it, but it's replacing it with something else, something else that is so much greater and so much deeper and so much fuller, which is, in broad terms, the love and presence of God and the Holy Spirit in your life. You're not just creating a void. You're killing something in order that may be replaced by something different. And then the whole excuses for sin can't bear their weight. And this just cracks me up. I'll think over what you've said very carefully. I honestly will. In fact, I'd let you kill it now. But as a matter of fact, I'm not feeling frightfully well today. What does that have to do with anything? Does it stop the lizard being killed because he's not feeling well? It would be silly to do it now. I'd need to be in good health for the operation. Some other day, perhaps. And the problem with this is that we are so good at making excuses. And excuses for sin started way back in the Garden of Eden. And we've, we've talked about this before. Um, and the verse that Justin started church off with tonight is one of my favorite verses about this. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And I want you to think about that word deceive. Now, if you're like me, whenever you hear that word, you immediately think of the first Lord of the Rings movie uh, and the prologue and that woman with this great accent is talking about the rings of power. And she says, but they were all deceived. It's really wonderful. Uh, but it's a great example of exactly what Lewis is talking about in this chapter, being deceived. They thought these rings were beautiful and powerful and would make them wealthy and wise and all these good things, but in fact, they ended up enslaving them. And we are deceived by sin, and we are deceived when we say we don't have any sin because the human condition while we are on this earth is that we still will be dealing with sin until the day that we die and we go to be with the Lord. And deceiving yourself is not a good place to be. What you want to do is to be able to be honest with yourself, to do what Paul says in Romans 12, to think of yourself with... I perhaps have a strange sense of humor, but I think Genesis 3.12 is one of the funniest verses in the Bible. Uh, so the fall of man has just happened, which is... I will admit, that's pretty bad, okay? It's a bad context. The fall of man has just happened, and God has gone looking for Adam and Eve in the garden. Of course, he knows exactly where they are, but he is reaching out to them and asking them where they are, and then he asks, 
what has happened? And Eve says, the serpent beguiled me and I ate. <laughs> Adam, gotta love Adam. Adam says, the woman, the woman whom you, God, you, you gave me this woman. She gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. So whose fault is this? God's fault. It's God's fault because he gave Adam that wily woman who made him eat the fruit. And he wasn't going to do that, but God stuck this woman there and look what happened. You know, it's all God's fault. And that's the same way. I mean, what a stupid, ridiculous excuse. He's lucky he didn't get smited. But don't we do exactly the same thing? We come up with the most ridiculous excuses for our behavior. And it reminds me so much of dealing with a little child who gets you know, the proverbial caught getting the cookie out of the cookie jar. Um, how many of you in dealing with a small child who has gotten a cookie out of the cookie jar, you've confronted the child and you say, say you're sorry. And the child is like, sorry. <laughs> and because you don't want to engage, you just accept that and move on. Well, that is ridiculous. And the problem is that we, we have lost the vocabulary in our culture to understand what it means actually to be sorry and to repent. One of the things that uh, I remember early on in a parenting book that we read, it talked about the importance of teaching your children not to just say, I'm sorry, but to say, I'm sorry, I was wrong, will you forgive me? There's a big difference between sorry and I'm sorry, I was wrong, will you forgive me? And that is a lesson that I think Lewis has implicitly put in this chapter as well. Eliminating sin will hurt. Sin clings to us. And things that cling to us, whether it be band-aids or whatever it might be, when you pull them off, there's pain. Uh, it's that old adage, no pain, no gain. Uh, that's not always true, but in this context, the elimination process, the thing that's hard about that, ultimately will be redeemed in such a way that the hurt will pale in comparison. So one of the things you see here with this bright spirit is that when it gets close and it starts dealing with the lizard, that the man is feeling burned. And part of what he's feeling burned by is the burning holiness of the presence of God. It's not an accident that the theophany where we see Moses in that early encounter with God told to take off his shoes because he is standing on holy ground, that God presents himself as a burning flame. And that is one of the images of holiness. And holiness and sinfulness cannot be together. And so when that holiness of this bright spirit encounters the sinful ghost, there's going to be this burning pain. You're burning me. How can I tell you to kill it? You'd kill me if you did. I never said it wouldn't hurt you. I said it wouldn't kill you. Why are you torturing me? You are jeering at me. How can I let you tear me to pieces? If you wanted to help me, why didn't you kill the damn thing without asking me before I knew? It would be all over by now if you had. It's all God's fault. But listen again, Hebrews 12 has got a lot of wisdom on this subject. Consider him, Jesus, who endured such hostility from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Now, I don't want to say here that you need to be out there trying to get yourself hurt, giving up sin. That's not what this is saying. But what it is saying is that there is an effort to be made that may be painful and may not be fun, but it may be what God is calling you to do. And let me hasten to add, this is not a works righteousness thing. This is not where you're trying to make yourself good so that God will love you. This is a trying to 
work in tune with the Holy Spirit for sanctification in your life so that you can experience the joy that God has for you, that sin holds you back from. And then again in Hebrews 12, no discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. And unfortunately, we live, we live in a culture where discipline is a dirty word. Discipline used to be a good word. Um, this is one of those ones that in the screw tape letters, uh, the devils writing each other would say, this is a triumph for our philology department, that we have changed the meaning of this word to something that people don't like. Because discipline comes from the same root word as disciple, which means follower. And part of the issue for us in our culture today with discipline is we want to just follow our feelings. And if our feelings say, I just want to sleep in the morning, the discipline of getting up when our alarm goes off is ridiculous. We would think, why would you ever want to do that? We just want to sleep all the time. And the funny thing about this is that for years, alarm clocks were one of the most basic things that you could ever get. And people heard the alarm go off, and what did they do? They got up. They got up. And then, in the 70s, the snooze button was invented. And all of humanity had existed just fine with alarm clocks that went off, and you knew that meant it was time to get up. But with the snooze button, it's kind of like managing sin. It's a gray area. But the problem is then people became so addicted to the snooze button that the alarm just didn't wake them up. They just kept hitting snooze. And so now you can buy all these crazy kinds of alarms. And I don't know if you've seen this, but there's one that I think is maybe called the earthquake. Um, but it's an alarm that comes with several attachments. And you can put, part of it goes under the mattress, and then part of it goes under your pillow and it gradually shakes and shakes and shakes until you wake up. And that's where our culture is about discipline. And the problem is that we just, we can't imagine discipline, like memorizing things in school. That's cruel to try to make children memorize. I could go on and on. But the, the idea is that discipline is important, and discipline is not usually pleasant. And Lewis talks about this a lot in his work, and one of the beautiful things that he talks about that's probably a, a joy that most of us will never experience is he talks about the discipline that it required for him to study and master the Greek alphabet and Greek language and how hard it was and that he had to spend hours each afternoon, toiling, and he's like, this is so awful. I hate it. There's no joy in this, and I had to toil and toil and toil, and it seemed so pointless. And then finally, he got to the point where he was fluent in Greek, and he could go and read some of these great works of Greek literature in the original language, and he was just overcome with joy. But he said if he had not been forced by his teacher to have the discipline to do that, he would never have experienced the joy that was in store for him. Sixthly, God will not intervene against our will, and sin will try to seduce us. I cannot kill it against your will. Have I your permission? The angel's hands were almost closed on the lizard. Then the lizard began chattering. Be careful, he can kill me then you'll be without me forever and ever. You'd be only a sort of ghost, not a real man. And I'll be so good. I admit, I've gone too far in the past, but I promise I won't do it again. Would you believe that lizard? I mean, the problem, though, is that all of us believe the lizard in our lives. We believe that it's not going to be that way. We're going to do this, and it's not going to turn out like it did last time. It's going to all be fine. But the fact of the matter is, sin leads to death. And Romans 1 is another great passage on this whole issue of sin. 
And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. And this whole idea in that chapter where it talks over and over again about God gave them up or God gave them over, I think is one of the most chilling things in all scripture, that when we insist over and over again on our own way in the face of knowing what God's way is, but choosing deliberately our own way over and over, at some point our hearts become hardened and God gives us over. And then from John, the one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. And again, from Jeremiah, the heart is deceitful, there's that word, above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? And this is something we have such trouble with in our culture because we want to believe that everybody is just nice and good, especially us. I mean, we are nice people, aren't we? We smell good, we bathe, we're well-groomed, we are polite in the grocery store. And we think that that makes us good people. But the fact of the matter is that all of us are rebels in one way or another. Because if we were good people, God would not have needed to send Jesus Christ to die a horrible, painful death on the cross to purchase our salvation. But our culture wants to tell us we are good and that this whole idea of original sin is um, something that was cooked up in a way to give us um, Freudian nightmares about things. And the fact of the matter is that the scripture is very clear that original sin is real and that we are sinners and that we are hopeless without the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, all these sinful practices, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. And then the most beautiful part of this, God wants to free us from slavery to sin that steals our joy. And this is such a beautiful thing. God doesn't want to leave us mired in the pit of our own sin, unable to crawl out of the mess that we've made of our lives. He wants to free us from that slavery to sin and replace it with joy. And eventually the ghost gets to the point of understanding that it would be better to be dead than to live with this creature. And this again is, there's a subtext about addiction in here too. This is such a good reflection of where addiction takes you. And sometimes that getting to that bottom is necessary to be able to begin to come out of it. So then the bright spirit, then I may, damn and blast you, go on, can't you get it over? Do what you like, bellowed the ghost, but ended whimpering, God help me, God help me. And of course, that's sort of two senses of that. That's the thing that we say automatically, but it's actually a prayer, and it is the prayer that God always answers. When you ask for God's help, you can be confident that that help will appear. Maybe not in the way that you imagined, but that God will answer that prayer because he cares for you. Next moment, the ghost gave a scream of agony such as I never heard on earth. The burning one closed his crimson grip on the reptile, twisted it while it bit and writhed, and then flung it, broken-backed, on the turf. Ow! That's done for me, gasped the ghost, reeling backwards. But of course we know that he wasn't done for, that that was the end of his ghostliness, and that he arose out of that is this beautiful new man. And you might remember, all through the New Testament, is this idea that when we come to Christ, we become a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. And in that new creation, we are remade in the image of God without the distressing disguise of sin. That will be the way it ultimately is when we enter fully into God's kingdom when we die. But that, that inner man is changed 
when the Holy Spirit comes to dwell in us. And this verse, again from Romans, for the wages of sin is death. That's what you earn from sin. You earn death. Why would you work in order to receive death? The wages of sin is death, what you deserve, you get what you deserve, but the gift of God, not what you deserve, but what's freely given to you, the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. So would you rather work and slave for sin in order to receive death, or would you rather have the gift of God of eternal life in Jesus Christ given to you. And then Paul and the summation of Romans 7, moving into chapter 8, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. And the beautiful thing about this is the New Testament is full of imagery that Jesus uses about his coming to rescue us and coming to ransom us. And I love that verse in Mark 10 where Jesus says, for the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And of course that word ransom is a money, an amount of money, usually a large amount of money, that is paid to deliver someone who has been taken captive. And Jesus uses that imagery to describe himself and what he wants to do for us. So when loves are rightly ordered, there's healing and joy. We read that passage before about the beautiful new creation of this man appearing, and then the old nasty gross lizard being turned into this beautiful horse where the lizard is no longer in the driver's seat. What's happened here is that God is in charge, then there's the man, and then the instinct and appetites of the man are subservient to both of those. So the man is riding the horse as sort of a symbol of that new ordering, rightly ordered loves. And it turns into this beautiful, beautiful horse. And uh, the rightly ordered loves make everything fit together in the way that it was supposed to be in the beginning. So that what is dirty and evil and tawdry has been replaced by what is noble and beautiful and full of love. And one of the other things that happens is this man who's been making excuses and arguing with the bright spirit and being ridiculous and listening to the lizard and saying, oh, he's going to behave now. All of a sudden, this man's heart has been transformed because as he becomes this new creation and the horse materializes before his eyes, look at what his first action is. He turns away, flings himself at the feet of the bright spirit, the burning one, and embraces and kisses the feet of this bright spirit. He has been utterly transformed. Luke 15, I tell you that in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. And then this famous verse that I think if we could ever really understand and live this verse out, it would transform our lives. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. That sums up this idea of rightly ordered love. That when we are seeking, and I love that word seek, that's a great word uh, if you're ever talking with teenagers in your life, uh, because even today, teenagers are still reading Harry Potter. And they know about the seeker in Harry Potter. And when you are playing Quidditch, the seeker is just absolutely 100% focused on trying 
to get the snitch. If you don't know what I'm talking about, don't worry about it. Uh, but if you do know what I'm talking about, it is just a beautiful example of the single-mindedness of seeking after something. And that's what Jesus tells us that we're to do, and that when we seek God and we seek the things of his kingdom, then all these other desires that we have will fall into place in the right order. And then this beautiful thing from the Psalms, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And if you've read Screwtape Letters, you'll remember that Screwtape quotes that last line, at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. Yuck, is what Screwtape says. And then he goes on to rail against God because he says every pleasure that there is, God created. And it is so unfair. All of our research and all of our efforts in hell have not enabled us to manufacture even one pleasure all the pleasures are out there, and God encourages these nasty bipeds to indulge in pleasures all day long, things that he doesn't mind in the least if they do. And here we're trying to make a pleasure and we can't do anything. All we can do is to try to get people to take pleasure in a way that is twisted or not permitted. And what God wants to give us is so much more that we can, than we can ask or imagine. Now, one of the things you'll learn if you read much Lewis is that the same themes keep showing up over and over again in different books. And everything about this chapter is right there in mere Christianity as well. And if you look in book one, chapter two, there is this paragraph and with a wonderful analogy. He says, strictly speaking, there are no such things as good and bad impulses. Think once again of a piano. It has not got two kinds of notes on it, the right notes and the wrong ones. Every single note is right at one time and wrong at another. The moral law is not any one instinct or any set of instincts. It is something which makes a kind of tune the tune we call goodness or right conduct by directing the instincts. And I love this, it's probably because I took piano lessons for about 20 years, but uh, this idea that there are not wrong notes and right notes on a piano. All the notes are right some of the time and all of them are wrong some of the time. If you are playing a G suspended chord and you're waiting for it to resolve and then you hit the wrong note, it's just awful. It'll make the hair on the back of your neck stand up. But when you hit the right note, it's beautiful. It's like if you love the choral piece, I was glad, which I play in here from time to time and we've had in the church. One of the reasons people love that anthem is it has this unresolved chord that is building and building and building and getting louder and louder and the notes are getting higher and higher and then all of a sudden it resolves into this just beautiful major chord while the choir is singing at the top of its lungs. And that's the way our instincts are supposed to be. All of these appetites that God gives us are appetites that can be used for good when they are ordered rightly according to God's word. And what Lewis is trying to show us in the struggles of these last two ghosts is what happens when we take any impulse and we elevate it into an idol or a god. So you see that with the woman who was really worshiping the memory of her son. You see it here with this guy who was obsessed with this lizard of lust and that when that becomes what you are building your life around, you are never going to experience joy. It is gonna be just like wrong notes after wrong notes, like uh, when a three-year-old is just banging on the piano, that is what the tune of your life will be like. But when it's ordered, it is like one of those beautiful pieces by Bach or Mozart where everything is just in order and beautiful. So that brings us back to Coldplay. Uh, so 
that song that we were listening to at the beginning uh, was written by Coldplay based on one of the lead singer's favorite hymns when he was growing up. And that hymn uh, was by a guy named Samuel Crossman. And that hymn is called My Song is Love Unknown. We're running out of time, so we're not going to read all of it, but I want to just read a little bit. My song is love unknown, my Savior's love to me, love to the loveless shown that they might lovely be. Oh, who am I that for my sake my Lord should take frail flesh and die? He came from his blessed throne, salvation to bestow, But men made strange, and none the longed-for Christ would know. But, oh, my friend, my friend in need, who at my need his life did spend. Let us pray. Oh, Lord, our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. Lord, we pray that as we live in this world and we struggle with sin, that you would remind us of the depth of your love for us, love that sometimes is unknown, that we can't fully appreciate, but when we see what you did in sending Jesus to save us through his shed blood on the cross, we pray that you would pierce the hardness of our hearts with the wonder of your love, that we would set aside every weight and every sin and every wrongly ordered love and that we would seek after you with our whole heart, that as we seek after you, that we would find you, and that your love would pour out over our lives, that we might pour that love out over this hurt and broken world. Lord, we thank you for your love, and pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.